Uh, welcome, uh, everyone, and uh, welcome to Durham Book Festival, uh, Rachel Joyce and, and Gavin Extens. Um, it, my name's um, Simon James, and uh, I'm lucky enough to teach novels at, uh, at Durham University. Uh, what we thought we might do um, this afternoon is, is to ask each of our authors to, uh, to read something from their, um, from their wonderful new books, uh, and then I'll ask them a few questions, and then uh, we'll give you the chance to ask a few questions. And I will say this now, because I know... By the time we get talking, I will have um, forgotten to do this. Uh, there is a for the, when we do get to um, to questions from you, uh, there will there are a couple of, of roving mics um, uh, so that everyone can hear you. So even if you're on the front row and uh, our authors can hear your question, if you could wait for the mic to come to you uh, so that uh, everybody can can hear you too, then then that that would be that would be great. Now I realise as I say this. I didn't ask you who wanted to go first. Um, who would like to read uh, from their book first? Um, <laughs> okay, well, you're in the middle, Rachel, so... <laughs> My glasses. Uh, I, I thought it probably easiest if I read from the beginning, because then there's no explaining to do. Um, so this is the prologue of Perfect, and it's called The Addition of Time. Which is the most tying in I'll probably do. Um, Here we go. In 1972, two seconds were added to time. Britain agreed to join the common market and beg, steal or borrow by the new seekers was the entry for Eurovision. The seconds were added because it was a leap year and time was out of joint with the movement of the earth. The new seekers did not win the Eurovision Song Contest, but that had nothing to do with the earth's movement and nothing to do with the two seconds either. The addition of time terrified Byron Hemmings. At 11 years old, he was an imaginative boy. He lay awake, picturing it happen, and his heart flapped like a bird. He watched the clocks, trying to catch them at it. When will they do it, he asked his mother. She stood at the new breakfast counter, dicing quarters of apple. The morning sun spilled through the French windows in such clean squares he could stand in them. Probably when we're asleep, she said. Asleep? Things were even worse than he thought. Or maybe when we're awake. He got the impression she didn't actually know. Two seconds are nothing, she smiled. Please drink up your sun quick. Her eyes were bright, her skirt pressed, her hair blow-dried. Byron had heard about the extra seconds from his friend James Lowe. James was the cleverest boy Byron knew, and every day he read the Times. The addition of two seconds was extremely exciting, said James. First, man had put a man on the moon. Now they were going to alter time. But how could two seconds exist where two seconds had not existed before? It was like adding something that wasn't there. It wasn't safe. When Byron pointed this out, James smiled. That was progress, he said. Byron wrote four letters, one to his local MP, one to NASA, another to the editors of the Guinness Book of Records, and the last to Mr. Roy Castle, courtesy of the BBC. (laughs) He gave them to his mother to post, assuring her they were important. He received a signed photograph of Roy Castle and a fully illustrated brochure about the Apollo 15 moon landing, but there was no reference to the two seconds. Within months, everything had changed, and the changes could never be put right. All over the house, clocks that his mother had once meticulously wound now marked different hours. 
The children slept when they were tired and ate when they were hungry, and whole days might pass, each looking the same. So if two seconds had been added to a year in which a mistake was made, a mistake so sudden that without the two seconds it might not have happened at all, how could his mother be to blame? Wasn't the addition of time the bigger crime? It wasn't your fault, he would say to his mother. By late summer, she was often by the pond down in the meadow. These days, it was Byron making the breakfast, maybe a foil triangle of cheese squished between two slices of bread. His mother sat in a chair, chinking the ice in her glass and slipping the seeds from a plume of grass. In the distance, the moor glowed beneath a veil of lemon sherbet light. The meadow was threaded with flowers. Did you hear, he would repeat, because she was inclined to forget she was not alone. It was because they added time. It was an accident. She would put up her chin. She would smile. You're a good boy. Thank you. It was all because of a small slip in time. The whole story. The repercussions were felt for years and years. Of the two boys, James and Byron, only one kept on course. Sometimes Byron gazed at the sky above the moor, pulsing so heavily with stars the darkness seemed alive, and he would ache. Ache for the removal of those two extra seconds. Ache for the sanctity of time as it should be. If only James had never told him. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, hello, everyone. Likewise, I am going to read from the very beginning of my novel, um, so there's nothing you need to know at all. This is the first um, 77 lines. I spend a lot of time on trains, so I, I occupy my time by doing things like counting how many lines I'm going to read. <laughs> so here we go. They finally stopped me at Dover as I was trying to get back into the country. I was half expecting it, but at the same time it came as a bit of a shock when the barrier stayed down. It's funny how some things can be so mixed up like that. Having come this far, I'd started to think that I might make it the whole way home after all. It would have been nice to have been able to explain things to my mother, you know, before anyone else had to get involved. It was 1am and it was raining. I'd rolled Mr Peterson's car up to the booth in the Nuffington to Clare Lane, where a single, single customs officer was on duty. His weight rested on his elbows, his chin was cupped in his hands, and, but for this crude arrangement of scaffolding, his whole body looked ready to fall like a sack of potatoes to the floor. The graveyard shift, dreary dull from dusk till dawn, and for a few heartbeats it seemed that the customs officer lacked the willpower necessary to rotate his eyeballs and check my credentials. But then the moment collapsed. His gaze shifted, his eyes widened. He signalled for me to wait and spoke into his walkie-talkie, rapidly and with obvious agitation. That was the instant I knew for sure. I found out later that my picture had been circulated in every major port, from Aberdeen to Plymouth. With that and the TV appeals, I never stood a chance. What I remember next is kind of muddled and strange, but I'll try to describe it for you as best I can. The side door of the booth was swinging open, and at the same moment there washed over me the scent of a field full of lilacs. 
It came on just like that, from nowhere, and I knew straight away that I'd have to concentrate extra hard to stay in the present. In hindsight, an episode like this had been on the cards for a while. You have to bear in mind that I hadn't slept properly for days, and bad sleeping habits has always been one of my triggers. Stress is another. I looked straight ahead and I focused. I focused on the windscreen wipers moving back and forth, and I tried to count my breaths. But by the time I'd got to five, it was pretty clear this wasn't going to be enough. Everything was becoming slow and blurry. I had no choice but to turn the stereo up to maximum. Hand was Messiah, flooded the car. The hallelujah chorus, loud enough to rattle the exhaust. I hadn't planned this or anything. I mean, if I'd had time to prepare for this, I'd have chosen something simpler and calmer and quieter. Chopin's Nocturnes or one of Bach's cello suites, perhaps. But I'd been working my way through Mr. Peterson's music collection since Zurich, and it just so happened that at that precise moment, I was listening to that precise section of Handel's Messiah, like it was fate's funny joke. Of course, this did me no favours later on. The customs officer gave a full report to the police, in which he said that for a long time I'd resisted detention, that I'd just sat there, staring into the night and listening to religious music at full volume, like he was the angel of death or something. You've probably heard that quote already. It was in all the papers. They have a real boner for details like that. But you should understand that at the time I didn't have a choice. I could see the customs officer in my peripheral vision, hunchbacked at my window in his bright yellow jacket, but I forced myself to ignore him. He shone the torch in my eyes and I ignored that too. I just kept staring straight ahead and focusing on the music. That was my anchor. The lilacs were still there, trying their best to distract me. The Alps were starting to intrude, jagged, frosted memories as sharp as needles. I swaddled them in the music. I kept telling myself that there was nothing but the music. There was nothing but the strings and the drums and the trumpets and all those countless voices singing out God's praises. I know in retrospect that I must have looked pretty suspicious just sitting there like that with my eyes glazed and the music loud enough to wake the dead. It must have sounded like I had the entire London Symphony Orchestra performing on the back seat. But what could I do? When you get an aura that powerful, there's no chance of it passing of its own accord. To be honest with you, there were several moments when I was right on the precipice. I was just a hair's breadth from convulsions. But after a while, the crisis abated. Something slipped back into gear. I was dimly aware that the torch beam had moved on. It was now frozen on the space about two feet to my left, though I was too frazzled to figure out why at the time. It was only later that I remembered. Mr. Peterson was still in the passenger seat. I hadn't thought to move him. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I think those 77 lines, uh, or whatever many lines your uh, preface is to, will really, uh, you know, uh, whet the appetite of those who haven't read these books yet. Um, and it's, um, I have to say, a really um, striking experience of having uh, reread these books again recently to then hear their openings read again by, by, by their authors, because you start looking, if you, if you have read the book, for, for the seeds of the plot that will, um, you know, that, that, that will follow. And, of course, um, both of these books start their stories um, partway through, um, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm delighted that you, you both came to Durham. I'm delighted that, that, that uh, Durham Book Festival asked, um, asked you to be on a panel together because I think these books 
um, talk about some of the same, or approach some of the same things from, from different directions in the most extraordinary way. I mean, perhaps I'll start with one of the, the most obvious ones is that um, in the, uh, the main narrative of, of, of Perfect and in uh, the universe versus Alex Woods as well, you, 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 um, the action is seen through the eyes of a, uh, if not quite a child, then a, then a, then a younger person. Mm -hmm. And I suppose um, childhood is one of the f very few truly universal experiences because we've all been children, perhaps some of us still are. Um, I, I wonder if you could, if you could just talk about, I mean, was that, did, did, you, did you set, set out with the intention to, um, to, to, to write about somebody younger or, or did, did that emerge over the course of, 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 of putting the novel together? Do you want to go? Uh, yes, okay, I'll go first. Since you went first with the reading, I'll, I'll let you have some thinking time. <laughs> um, I, I really love teen narrators. I always have. I think you can do a lot of things um, with a child's perspective that you can't do so well with an adult. And it allows you to look at the world with really fresh eyes. And it allows you to um, look at a lot of big, complicated issues in a very down-to-earth, straightforward way. Um, so I love that about teen narrators. Um, I love the fact that with, with most uh, stories, I think, you have to sort of shoehorn in um, things like character development. With, with a child, you don't. That is the point where your character actually develops. You sort of, you become the person you are and you change more than at any other time during your adolescence. Um, so I always had in mind that I was writing really a sort of um, coming-of-age story. And... Um, when Alex tells the story, he's right on the cusp of adulthood. He's 17, 18. And the events go back to when he was 10 and then bring you back to the, to the, um, to the um, beginning and the end of the book. So it's a circular narrative. So I think those were my reasons. And beyond that, I just, there's some books that I love that, um, that do things with child narrators. Sounds like a fantastic reason for um, Rachel. Um, mine was, um, that basically, when I came at the story, I knew that I wanted to write a story about a, a tiny moment in time that you know, had huge repercussions over years, and, and just to sort of study that tiny moment and then all the waves. So I knew that it was going to be about an accident um, involving a mother and a son, and I'm also very moved by the point... I, I have four children, but my son is 11, He's not. He's 13. He was 11. He's now 13. He's grown <laughs> up a bit. But what, what I love, he's just got to the point where he, he is as big as me. And I see in him the thing I have with my mother when I hug my mother and I want her to get bigger. And I, ha I can see the same with my son, that he, want, he needs and wants me to be bigger. But, of course, we've reached the point where we are the same size. And it's a very delicate, poignant shift, I think, for children especially. So anyway, when I came to telling this story about this accident and this mother and son, I started off thinking I will write it through the point of view of the mother um, because that's more where I am. Um, but the point about the mother, I found, is that she is one of those very fragile people. You know that there are some people that you love and they're very difficult to love because they are, they're not quite translucent, but you feel that at any moment they might fly away. And that was the woman I wanted to write. So every if I, I wrote the story from her point of view, she became more and more solid. Do you see what I mean? It, it rooted her, the story. And so it seemed much more moving to write from the point of view of a child loving that kind of mother. 
um, and trying to keep, you know, being ballast mm. to her, when she, by her nature, is something that moves, is fluid. So that was really why I came around to writing, you know, predominantly the story from his point of view. So she came first. She yeah. did come first. Well, I, I noticed, I mean, a couple of, um, uh, you know, reviews of both books have described them because they're about teenagers as being coming-of-age narratives. But I, I'm, that didn't feel strictly accurate to me because I think you're both so true to that original perspective that a, a true coming-of-age narrative is at the end they're 100% fully functioning adult human being and doing what the world is, uh, you know, expects of them after that. But I think you both write so well about fragility or, 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 the, or the fact that, the, you know, the perspective doesn't completely grow up and fit in with the rest of the world after that. Um. No. I mean, I don't know. I never feel I've arrived anywhere. So <laughs> it, it seems um, wrong to write a story where somebody has sort of fully fledged by the end of it. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, for me, actually, one of the things that was on my mind of writing the book is one of the things about um, growing up and becoming an adult is realising that adults are so fallible and they don't have all the answers yeah. and a lot of Alex's yeah. story is that really it's um uh, thinking things out for himself and sort of realizing that um that the adult world isn't a, a safe place sometimes adults get things terribly terribly wrong mm. Mm. and um yeah I think that does help him be comfortable in his own the own his ways in which he's different and, you know, see that as part of um, the way the world is, really. It also gives you a chance to do something quite interesting with storytelling, though, doesn't it? When you're, when you're writing from a child's point of view, you're assuming that it's mainly adults reading your book, so you know that an adult perspective will see more than the child. will see beyond what the child sees. And so we'll see the danger or whatever it is that the, you know, the child may be heading towards. So that you then, your experience as a reader is a sort of, almost a bigger experience than the, the child that you're describing. And I think that's quite a rich place to take a story. Yeah, I think, I think that really works. The, the, the way that Byron sees his mother is it's unreliable that we can see a bit further and might have a yes. vocabulary to interpret yes. what's going on with her, which, which yes. he, poor, poor lad, doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> and with the best will in the world, which, again, I find really moving when people mm. really genuinely are trying to help but just don't have the equipment or the understanding. Yes, and, and yet at the same time, and I should say too, both books are really funny as well. To I'm taking the discussion, you know, I laughed out loud, you know, the, the way the way through both. But um, I think one thing too that the, the child's perspective is in both is that um, children have such pronounced pronounced senses of of, of, of right and wrong, mm. uh, which then, as you say, then come into collision with the way that the the, the adult um, uh, world thinks of uh, thinks of being of being right right and wrong. I mean, I've I've noted a. Um, I think when, when Alex is, is, is caught in a, in a fight at school and the teacher says, it takes two people to make a conflict, and I think he thinks that, um, it's one of those statements that sounded true but wasn't really true when you thought about <laughs> yeah. it. Um, or, or elsewhere, too, there were things that were true, but they were not the only truths, too, that, that actually, you know, that, 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 you know kids have, have you know, very firm senses of, you know, well, you know, this is happening to me and it's, and it's not fair. Yeah, I think um, that was another part of what I loved about writing Alex is there was that mixture of um, naivety and uh, really sort of sharp intelligence. And I, I think it, it, you get a lot of humour and things from the naive perspective, but you also get those um, moments when you get a sort of truthfulness about looking at the world and looking at about its complexities that 
um, as an adult, I think you start to take for granted that certain things are certain ways and that that's how they have to be. But as I think with a child, you've got a lot more um, freedom, a lot more sort of idealism, really, in that perspective. I think, and, um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. I think in, in um, again, in both novels too, there is, um, this kind of manifests itself too in, in how, you know, how it's right to behave towards other people too, that there, there are the sort of making and, and remaking of, of, of bonds between different people. I mean, the friendship that's at, at the heart of uh, the universe versus um, Alex Woods, the, 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 the family relationship is, is, you know, is, is contested too. I mean, something else that, that struck me too is you would think, you know, what could be more uh, natural than a relationship between a parent and a, and a child? But it, yeah. it really comes across how even that relationship is, is mediated by culture and history and class and what other people think. Ye yes. I mean, all those things are part of it, aren't they? And get in the way or don't get in the way. Um, I don't know what to say. Other, I mean, it's a terrible answer, but yes is really the best answer <laughs> I can give. <laughs> well, I thought, I mean, it's certainly in the, in the plot of, of, of Alex Wood too, is, is that, you know, I, I, again, um, uh, uh, I think I, don't, I mentioned this before, is, is to, you know, to ask questions that, that don't give away the, the ending of, it, of, either, yeah, of, yeah. of either novel. That, um, uh, uh, I mean, you know, some what Alex decides to do towards the end of the book is something that a lot of people will, will still think is morally wrong mm. um, or is, is, is legally wrong, but he, he, take, he takes that decision anyway. I'm, I, I must but it's a fantastic, isn't it, when a story does that to you, when, mm. it's, when a story takes you to somewhere you didn't think you were prepared to go and you find yourself being led by the writer to that place and to then, you know, to just sort of you know, question things. But I think it's brilliant when you... you, and you I really admire it when I, I feel I've just been, without my quite noticing that we were going there, been led somewhere. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think as well, um, no-one likes to read a book where you feel like you're being lectured to and, like, mm. this is my agenda and I'm going to wave it in your face. Yeah. And um, I, I think really good novels tend to ask questions and that's, you know, that's sort of what we do and um, don't do that um, flag-waving. But uh, personally, from my own perspective, definitely, I start from character, and the story was completely driven by the characters, which I, I had long before I actually had much in terms of the plot. And I suspect Rachel might be similar, because her, her novels are so um, deeply characterised. But for me, that's the sort of... that's the human thing that yeah. that drives the issues. The issues have to be secondary, really, because a novel is, a, I think, well, first, it, you know, it's a pleasurable thing, but second, it's about human beings and how they interact at, at their core. And from that, you start getting the wider issues of how um, the law and society and class and things like that um, affect the way people try and have relationships with each other. I'm, I'm always, I mean, I, I am, I really do like to think about character and, and, and emotional truth is really important to me. And I, I mean, I do, I do my best to, to, to really feel things through and come to a place where I feel, no, that, that adds up. 
But I get, I'm very interested as, as, as well in what happens with storytelling when you just, because you're obviously telling a story, you know, and it's not just these people all getting together and discussing various things. You know, you as a writer are coming on top of it and giving it, giving it beats or story points or, you know, giving it changes or, you know, as, you know, in your opening pages when you, you know the whole thing, but you're giving us tiny pieces that make us really want to come, you know, come the journey with you. But you're not going to give us the whole journey. You're going mm. to throw in a little bit. But that, you know, that I really love and, and I admire when I read it, that I'm being teased a bit, you know, and played with and I'm having to work. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, I, I think, from my perspective, um, this is my debut novel. And with debut novels in particular, you have to work really, really hard to grab a reader straight away because people have no investment in your work. Um, th they've got no reason to read you, essentially. You have to make them want to read on. And I think that really um, is something about the beginning of debut novels in particular, that it, it was always on my mind, and it was quite a sort of... Um, it felt at times like a sort of a, a cynical um, commercial decision that, you know, I've got to get a, a publisher to get interested in this. But actually, it was a really, really valuable um, storytelling lesson because that's what I think good openings do. They yes. ask a load of questions, and then hopefully you sort of provide some of the answers yes. as you go along. But, um, There's, um, I love, do you know the book, Why Be, uh, Jeanette Winterson's book, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, which I, yeah. I think is an amazing book. She has a brilliant bit in it where she says, the opening pages of the book... <sighs> It's, it, you know, you've got, you've got in your, this whole world that you want to write about. But when you, the opening page or chapter is like taking a frame this big and you just keep laying it on top of your story and working out which is the first picture you're going to give to your reader, you know, how you're going to get them into the world of the book. But I thought it was such a brilliant way to describe it that you have this sort of tiny picture frame and you've just got to place it on the bit that you think is most beguiling. And... Um, then you're away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you, um, you, you get to, um, because the, the, the story starts you know, part way through, you get to open it then, and then you get to open it where it, where it begins too. Yeah. And in the case of Perfect 2, um, uh, for those of you that haven't read it, it it's, it's written in al alternating chapters too. So mm. while we're thinking about the characters, can I ask about, about Jim too and the challenge of he, writing him? Because this is yes. a character that... Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, I mean, doesn't have a, a very developed inner life, but doesn't have a very developed external life either, so no. that I set up a particular set of challenges. It, well, I, it, it did. I mean, I, Jim is a character who, who lives in a camper van, and he's, he's been in and out of um, mental institutions. Um, but his story goes alongside this story of Byron and his mother and this accident. So Byron's story is 1972, and Jim's story is the present. And... Um, I mean, the, the challenge for, for, for me, I mean, basically, the, what I wanted the reader to think is why, why okay, why are, these, why are these two stories put together? And what am I, where am I going with that? So that is, you know, that was what my, my challenge was. Um, but having said that, getting, your, sorry, your question was getting into the character of Jim. I mean, that seemed, it, it never feels a problem to me getting into the characters because they, they feel very clear. I mean, I think I probably write about the people I'm moved by. And um, because Jim's predicament moved me very much, which is someone who really has to do a lot of rituals in order to do the simplest things, um, 
I mean, that, that touches me. So, I, I, you know, and I, I, I wanted to write about that kind of man. And loneliness touches me, mm. um, you know, as does people finding love. Uh, so, so I think if, if there's a bit of you that, you know, wants to hold your characters, that's a, that's a good incentive to keep going with them. I think, no, that absolutely fits with my sense of reading the novel too. But I think that that really resonates too with um, with the novel's preoccupation with the theme of time, which is foregrounded anyway through the, the, the yeah. split narratives. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, just as uh, because if if Jim he goes through these these rituals as a way of imposing order on the world and yeah. feeling that the world is in control, and it made yeah. me think that mathematical time is also a way of imposing order on the world. That there are so it many is. seconds it in is. a minute, so many minutes in an hour. Yet, of course, we experience time subjectively, that time flies when you're having fun, that time goes yeah. more quickly when you get older. Yeah, and, all those... Uh, th yeah, I mean, I, got, I am very interested in the idea of time. I'm quite interested just in all the things that we... You know, the rules that we sort of have and we stick to. I mean, I'm not really a very rebellious person, I have to say, but when I was at um, school, I remember in sixth form, I was made a prefect. And... Um, one of the jobs the prefect had to do was to open the door for the headmistress. And I remember thinking, well, I don't understand why. I mean, I didn't drop it on her face or anything like that, but I, mean, I was quite <laughs> well behaved. But, you know, they're just rules sometimes, and you think this is, these are just the rules, but why, why are we all doing the rules? But time really did get me, and I, I, I mean, I, got, I, I am very interested in the idea. I'm very interested in what happens to us because we have words, certain words, and what else have we got? Um, that they then, they kind of trap us. Um, so time, for instance, the more research I did about time, I was reading about this one particular culture, and now, of course, I can't remember where it is, where the future, we say the future's ahead of us, don't we? In their language, the future is behind you. Because you can see the past, <laughs> but you can't see the future. And I thought, well, of course, but, but we've put it all the other way around. So we have, and I think it colours your attitude to the future and your attitude to the past. Because we've, you know, we, we've got to do something, I admit, and we do have to use some words because it's better than not having any. Mm. But it's just the, the kind of, the constrictions that we force on ourselves. So time is, I mean, is the ultimate, isn't it? Because... Who says it's four? Who says it's four o'clock? <laughs> and the same with... I mean, I, I got very... Two seconds were added in 1972. As a 10-year-old, that would have really alarmed me. Yes. Because you, what do you mean? We've just gone to the moon, which is wild enough, and now we're, uh, we're saying that time isn't time, or we can alter time. You know, I thought time was real, all that stuff. Yeah. I, I, I think, too, well, I, I wonder if I might... Um, Invoke here the, the presiding deity of, uh, of, of, your, of your novel, Gavin, because these, uh, a lot of these questions that we're asking sound to me like questions that were also asked in the novels of Kurt Vonnegut that are, mm. that are read um, one after another by, by the hero of your, of your novel. Was this a way of, of paying tribute? Um, or Yes, it was. I mean, partly... Uh, Kurt Vonnegut writes the sort of fiction I like to read, which is very, very accessible and funny and warm, but it, it does a lot. There's a lot of big ideas going on there. Um, I think several of Kurt Vonnegut's books kind of provided the beginnings of Alex's voice in that mixture of, um, of intelligence and naivety that I've been talking about in particular. 
So when I started to write, I obviously did what all um, good writers want to do and immediately tried to bury this influence so no one would know where I, I got my ideas from. <laughs> but sort of halfway through, um, or not halfway through, a third of the way through or something, this became something that would, I thought was a really interesting way to talk about, um, well, I suppose how we engage with the world and big ideas through books. But also it became a, a really important plank in the relationship between Alex and Mr. Peterson. So Mr. Peterson is in his 60s. Um, Alex, when he meets him, is 13. They need something in common that sort of brings them together and becomes part of their friendship. And um, Kurt Vonnegut seemed a perfect fit for that because he, he had a very wide readership. Um, you know, he's accessible certainly for, for teenagers and young adults. But... Um, Obviously, a lot of um, people grew up reading him in the 60s, and he was part of that whole 60s counterculture. And also, I, I think it, it really played into some of the things I was interested in in the book to do with the differences between the law and morality and all those sorts of questions that, that Kurt Vonnegut asks. So there were multiple reasons. <laughs> OK. Well, I think, I think it works perfectly because I think the... The interest in Kurt Vonnegut fits alongside the other uh, interests in the book because, you know, while it is, you know, a very, you know, um, a very, you know, a very warm and very funny and moving book about about a friendship, um, it's also a book about all these kind of strange covert knowledges. So, uh, alongside Kurt Vonnegut, um, you've also got information about um, about neurology, um, about meteors, uh, about about music, um, about uh, growing things uh, uh, in your in a room of your house that perhaps you shouldn't be allowed to be to be growing, um, uh, and, and also um, the, the, the you know the, the particular technology and, and and legal apparatus that, that goes around the, uh, the you know the the the, end, the ending of the book too, because it, it felt that you know that um, I notice your um, you have a, a Twitter feed for for Alex with 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 facts you know and things that he knows, and those those are introduced in the novel too, but I think very organically because they they come up in his in his in his narrative voice. Yeah, well, um, I, I really love little facts and those sort of things you find out on QI and just those <laughs> weird, weird bits of information. Um, so stuff like the, the two seconds being added to time would fascinate me. I didn't know anything about that <laughs> until I read Rachel's book. And it, it, it does just seem like such a, a strange thing to have happened. Um, but yes, it's completely part of Alex's character. It always was... Um, I think of him as being a, a, a little scientist, basically, and he's, he's just got this thirst for knowledge, um, which I certainly had at his age, but I wasn't Alex as a teenager. I sort of did what all teenagers do, which was try to sort of um, squash that and pretend I wasn't interested in learning or, or anything um, <laughs> that would mark you out as, as different in any way. So it was fun to write that part of Alex, that he's... Um, He's the, the teenager who defies the, the odds of what all teenagers do and actually is comfortable in his bookishness and everything else. But again, I think it's something you can get away with in um, kids that would possibly be insufferable in an in <laughs> adult character, that you've got this sort of the Alex lecturing to you about facts mm. about the world that are really interesting. And, you know, it's just a natural part of um, how he views the universe, but but I think he's he's already marked out as a singular right at the very beginning because he's he's the boy that's hit by a meteor, and so he becomes a, a media story in the way that Harold Fry yeah. does in, right, in your yeah, first yeah. novel too yeah. that he has a you know a life outside of his life within the within the world of the um, of the of, of, of the novel. 
Um, okay, I wonder if uh, perhaps uh, I'm, I'd be very. There are all kinds of things I would love to know still about these books, but I, I wonder if perhaps we might invite some some uh, some questions from the uh, from 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 the audience. Um, I wonder. Um, yes, we have a, a question here down the down the front. <coughs> Sorry, I, could, could we um, wait for the, the the microphone which is heading your way? Thanks ever so much. Thank you. Hi, uh, Gavin, uh, I just finished the book just, uh, just very recently. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I saw real parallels with um, the book and uh, Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Is that just me, or was, that, was it an influence on you? I, I can confirm that that is just you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no one has, has brought that up before, but um, I, I guess there probably are parallels. There's the fragility and that sense of being vulnerable and different and... Um, obviously, the central friendship as well. But no, there were lots of books that, um, that consciously influenced me. And there were lots of books that I'm starting to think I must have been oblivious to, but did influence me. I, I've read of, of Mice and Men. People bring up the um, Curious Incident of the Dog of the Nighttime a lot as well, which I thought is where you were going to end. And, and that, again, is something that never occurred to me when writing. But when people say it to me, I... Um, I can see the parallels, and I think there's probably something there. But then, obviously, then obviously because you know that uh, George kills Lenny, and yeah. then, uh, obviously Alex sort of facilitates <laughs> what happens to Mr. Peterson. We're giving too much away. <laughs> too late. <laughs> yeah, I think this was a. Um, Again, that was a really sort of crude commercial thing to do of how do you make people feel pity for your character? Oh, kill their dog. And then, you know, <laughs> everyone's going to cry at that point. There's, yeah. a, there's a brilliant... Um, I say brilliant. I've, only, I've read it once. I don't think, there's a book. It is quite good about a screenplays, and it's called Save the Cat. And the idea of that is that your hero must do something like saving a cat in the first five minutes of the film in order for the um, audience to go along with them. <laughs> I haven't done it yet, but, but I, th that, I think they do that. I think I think both both books have have surprises in them too. I think there are there, there are steps that the plots could take that would give a, an easy consolation. Uh, but but I and, I and I think actually no, I think you both want the plots to work a bit harder for the for the for the reader to get there. I think that was certainly the case for, for Harold Fry as well too. Um, but I'm oh, sorry, do we have um, do we have another question? Did I see a hand go up there, or shall I carry on? No. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'll I'll um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll carry on then if if, if that's um, if that's all right too. That um, I mean, I, I I was my heart was in my mouth just 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 for a moment that I think um, I think it's um, references to the as I say I'm, I'm going to try and give away not the ending. I think it's perfectly right to give away the ending of any any novel written in the 1930s. Let's assume uh, that we've all read it and nothing's <laughs> nothing's going to be given away there too. But um, there are I think you know p particularly perfect rests on. Um, uh, Actually, no, a, not exactly a twist, but I think more sort of a, um, secrets. I think you yeah. know, that, that lots of great novels have, you know, have, have, have secrets that they you know, give out, but not until the right time. I, I agree. I mean, I, I wasn't aware that I wanted to write a sort of book with a twist. It was just that when I was thinking about the structure of the book and making the, the reader work the way I like to work, I thought there is an obvious twist here. So, um, as there was with Harold Fry... Mm. Um, but the thing for me about a twist is that I, uh, I, don't, I don't like it if it's not plausible. So 
So it's got to be that when your reader, I hope, gets... And the reader may see it, you know, ages beforehand, and that's fine, mm. because there are clues there, or they may not. But that's a bit like life, you know. Sometimes we see things that are obvious, and sometimes we don't. But, but so long as when you look back on the book, you go, yeah, yeah, of course. I think that's fine. It's only when you look back and you go, no, hang on a minute, that it <laughs> seems unfair. Mm. Um, so, that, so I, I mean, I, but I do like her. I do like a twist. Yeah, well, well I think that the clues are there not just in terms of, of detail, but also in, in terms of the, the sort of the, the psychological effects yeah. on, the, on the character yeah. too. Uh, yeah. that, that, you know, you, if you carry a secret around with you for years, uh, it, it will have an effect. I, 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 I'm, I noted, I think being a, being a literary critic, I'm always, you know, looking for, you know, puns or double meanings or things like that, but yes. where you write about... Um, uh, about one of the characters where you say that he must own the past. Uh -huh, yes, and I thought yes. own both in the sense of, yeah. of take possession of, but own in the sense that Shakespeare uses it too, of he must admit it yes. too, that this, yes. uh, and as if the novel can't end until it comes to light, but that mustn't happen in a forced way, it'll, it'll happen in, in, in time indeed. In, yeah, yes. But maybe in just not in a minute's time. <laughs> know, absolutely. <laughs> but in an emotional time. <laughs> Um, and I think to, to that, that seems to... I mean, this is in... Uh, it's there in, in Harold Fry, too, about the... I, I mentioned earlier, I think, the, the fragility uh, often of your, of, of your characters. And I think we often yeah. imagine that, um, you, know, uh, that, you know, all kinds of languages imagine that, you know, that, that we're always physically healthy, that we're never emotionally disturbed, that, you know, that we're mentally healthy, that the, our yeah. model of the thinking subject is one that works perfectly well. And I think novels, good novels, realise that that's that that's not the case. Uh, I, I guess, I, don't, I suppose as well, though, it is the sort of person that you are, isn't it? I mean, you're going to, you're like, you know, I think you are going to write from, the, obviously, the person who you are, but certainly when I was writing Jim, this character in the camp mm. that we were talking about, um, I, live, I live near in Gloucestershire, near um, Stroud, and um, we happen to live near a public footpath. Um, which is quite an interesting thing to do because you, you tend to see the same people at different, you know, at certain times of the day, so, which I quite like and sort of see what they do. But there was one man who really, I haven't seen him for a while, but he really moved me. He, he used to walk along and he had, had a sort of, you know, when you see a haircut that's too violent, you, you think that, that must hurt, that haircut. And um, he had one of those. And then, he, and then he used to really shout He'd come out and he'd be really shouting at this dog. And you'd think, the first time I heard him, I thought, my God, he's got a lion. It has to be. <laughs> and it mm. event, and, I thought, I can't, and then I saw it. It was about this big. <laughs> it was the tiniest, most fragile, helpless little dog. But it was disproportionate. And, so, and people looked at him as if he were odd, you know, not, not right. And he, for, for a reason, I mean, I don't know anything about him, but he got me. Mm. Um, and made me think in some way. Or, you know, there's a, there's a, in Harold Fry, there's a man with a, um, in a dress with his eye punched, and um, he was a man that my daughter and I saw in Stroud one day, and um, I didn't know what to do with what I felt mm. for this man, because he was just sitting there, you know, I'm a man punched up with a dress. And... Uh, in the end, I put him... I think I put him in Harold Fry because I thought that was the best I could do to help. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so there he is. <laughs> but it's... it's <laughs> it was, I think he's there in your, in your, in your language, too. So again, if I, you know, if I may, I just um, quote that... that um, I think this is, about, um, this is about Jim, about the effort of trying to keep things up for him is uh, like pretending to be a shiny new cup when he knew he had a hairline crack. 
um, or Byron uh, watching um, his mother come apart so that it was li like blowing the seeds from a dandelion and watching them drift. I mean, I think... I mean, that works, doesn't it, everyone? I mean, you know, goodness me. But, uh, uh, and I mean, now the, the damage to Alex, of course, is, is, has a much more obvious and, and, and physical symptom in the, in the form of the, <laughs> of the rock from space that, yes, uh, that yeah. immediately makes him, <laughs> makes him famous. And I, I wouldn't... Um, I think it would be too facile to describe Alex in that sense as being, as being damaged, but I think he's, he's at, a, at, a, at an angle from the, from the rest of the world. The, a, a character late on in the, uh, a German-speaking character late on in the, in, in the novel describes him as an um, Angloser. Is that, is that right? As being one if you say so. I can't, <laughs> I can't one, remember what One I without cunning is where, where he, he, he glosses yeah, it. Yeah, without guile, I think he, he is... Um, he, he's a completely open character in a sense in that he doesn't try and hide anything. He doesn't have... He doesn't play any of those games that... Um, that was, is part of what's different about Alex is he becomes an adult in the book, but he doesn't become an adult in the way that <laughs> most of us do, that you become aware of the sort of social hierarchy and power games. And he's very, very open and says what he thinks. And... Um, that was always uh, a part of his character. Being damaged, um, I, I tend to think that we're all damaged in some way. It's just that it tends to be private. Um, <laughs> and that was certainly, it was one of the parallels again that with him and Mr. Peterson that I knew from the beginning was going to make their relationship work, that um, he has his own, his own scars, sort of physical and mental. And Alex is, um, is similar. I think as well, I wanted, obviously there's a lot in the book that treads the line of plausibility and um, it had to have that groundedness in, um, in character and believability of, of having, um, I, I guess, enough depth to the character that he, he felt like a, a real person. And I tried to sort of make his idiosyncrasies feel like that, feel mm. about things that weren't shoved in to, to make a point that were um, things that sort of explained the, the ways in which he is who he is. The other thing I, I think that certainly occurred to me early on is um, his epilepsy is, oh, it, it's something that, again, that marks him out as different, but also it's something that matures him. It forces him mm. to, to be um, grown up before his time. And I, I think childhood illness can do that. Mm, I, I think it yeah. can really sort of, or having to be a carer or anything like that, it, it forces you to, um, to be an adult. And again, it was that duality that he's, he's a child and in lots of ways he's naive, but also he has to be mature beyond his years. Yes, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, I think, in the way that he, he speaks too. And perhaps uh, Mr. Peterson serves an, an important role there of saying you know, that the, the adult world... Um, doesn't have to be, you know, that not all adults see it the way that, um, uh, that the, you know, the, the you know, say, you know, the, the school teachers um, uh, you know, around him. There, there was a, a wonderful passage which I don't want to spoil because I think it's one of the great comic set pieces in the novel about um, the, the way in which his school seems to think that um, uh, certain forms of language are, are much more morally wrong than, than, than mm. bullying. Um, that, 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 you know, that there are. I suppose almost countercultural voices. I suppose his mother as well, too. Although she's lampooned um, a little bit, it's 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 still a very, uh, from his point of view, it's still a very affectionate lampoon. 
It, it is, and um, I was always quite sort of careful, I think when I was writing Alex's mother in particular, that I didn't want her to be a, a joke character. Um, she's uh, scatty, someone called her this morning who I spoke to, which I think is a great description. Mm. She is, but there's loads of things about um, her that I, I really love and respond to. Um, my own mum is in the audience somewhere. <laughs> and um, she immediately said, oh, I can see myself in, in Alex's mum in lots of ways. And my mum's a teacher. She's not a clairvoyant like Alex's mum. <laughs> but um, that counterculture was a big part of me growing up. My mum's quite hippie-ish. She won't mind me saying that. Um, my wife is too. Uh, but again, I, I think it was a case of balancing those sort of more extreme elements or things that could become cartoonish and grounding them in a character who is sympathetic and who felt real. And in lots of ways, she's just a mother like any other mother. She, she really cares very deeply about her son and um, wants the best for him. And I think that's something he doesn't appreciate as a, a child and young teenager in the way that no teenager ever does. You don't appreciate what your um, parents do for you. And by the end, he kind of has that realisation that there's a lot more to their um, relationship. It runs much deeper than their surface differences. Mm. Yes, I think Ellie is a, has an important you know, other corner in that, in that relationship too, as being more the way that we would expect a teenager to be, but actually the way that we expect a teenager to be is also to have a rather kind of you know, jaundiced uh, you know, eye on the world or an acute relationship to it. Um, yeah, I think these were all sort of points of conflict. I think Alex's mum and Ellie as well, I wanted them to be... Um, they challenge him in different ways. They mm. seem very, very different um, characters. And I think what I really like in stories, and this applies to Rachel's stories as well, I like it when you get characters who you think um, they can't possibly have anything in common and then discovering what they do have in common. <laughs> and it's just a really warm, lovely thing. Um, of those sorts of unlikely friendships, I suppose, mm. and they're scattered throughout um, Howard Frey and, and Perfect as well, I think, that it's, it's just a really nice thing to um, discard all that baggage to do with class and, and taste and, and all the other things that we think mm. are really sort of big um, differences between us and find out what people have actually got in common in terms of um, what makes them smile and their mm. morality and all those mm. sorts of things. I find it interesting that that, um, that you both talk about the, the, the characters as, as sort of you know appearing before you as, if you as if you have to write the book to find out who the character is, but at the same time too thinking about a story as having elements or components that you need to keep in check. That I'm thinking about the way that a, a you know the, you know characters present themselves organically that way, but stories work under a fixed set of rules like a um, like a tarot reading or forgive me like a, a chess game or even like mm -hmm. the, the structure of writing a, a, a radio play mm -hmm. which of course you did so successfully so many years before uh, bef bef before writing novels too that you have a certain template to, to fit and, and, and I think and in radio you too. really do and I mean I found it a really good um, I mean I'm really glad that I've got radio as a sort of thing I've come from as a discipline um, I mean partly uh, I mean I, I do woman do the woman's hour um, I've done quite a few adaptations for Women's Hour, and they're a real challenge because you have... I mean, I don't know, how, how many words roughly is your book? You it say? is 111,000 words, roughly. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so when you do an adapt, when you do um, an episode for Women's Hour, it's 2,500 words. So it's 13, 14 minutes of drama. So you have 2,500 words to get 
to get your, you know, to get somebody not to turn the radio off. That's one of the base, you know, one of the basic requirements. Um, but then, you know, you so you've got to have a sort of beginning. You've got to have hooks. You've got to have beats, the plot points, and then you've got to have a really good hook at the end that means that they'll come back tomorrow. And then if it's a 10-part, so it's going over the weekend, on Friday you have to have a massive hook so that people <laughs> will definitely come back on Monday. And then on Monday morning, without anybody realising, you've got to have a massive reminder of everything that happened last week. <laughs> but all this appearing you know, as if it's story you know, and that people would actually say. You know, so it, I think it's... And, and also with radio, you cannot have a scene unless it advances the plot. It just won't lie. It won't be in there. So you can write the most exquisitely beautiful thing and you can imagine it being underscored, you know, and it would just go. Because unless, unless the listener, each scene, is finding out something that they didn't know in the last scene, it's, it's, not, it's not valid. Good Lord. <laughs> and I think that's, that's a really good... I mean, I, I think that's a great place to come from. Mm. Somebody said to me recently they don't think that, you know, that story is a bit sort of sneered at, that, you know, we sort of think it's a bit, I don't know, low, low down. But I think the story is so important. And, you know, the, the device that you use and, the, you know, and the hooks that you use and the way that you pull and tease and tempt and play. Yeah, I agree. I, I've got a, such a respect for... I, I studied English literature and sort of story is the last thing you look at. But I've got such a respect for story, knowing how um, difficult it is to, to make yeah. a story work. Um, but also, I think that the big tension in writing, and one of the hardest things, is everything in, in a story is completely contrived, and you have to make it seem that it isn't, that it's the most natural thing in the world, and of course this happens, and, and you know, this is how the real world works. So that's very, very difficult. Um, my my uh, method of writing Alex, and I'm on my second novel now, and the same here, is I never had that experience, obviously, of engaging an audience uh, week by week, day by day. But I did write the novel for my, for my wife as a um, fortnightly serial, basically. Yeah, right. okay. <laughs> and it was the same thing. Yeah. It meant that it gave me a sense of momentum that I was handing in some work at the end of a yeah. week. But it, it gave me those... Um, those hooks that Rachel was talking about, it's like I wanted her to want to read on. Yeah. And that's another thing that I think is kind of underrated with um, fiction is actually engaging with an audience and, you know, a reader. There's this whole idea that you write for yourself and you write what you must write. But actually, like, getting people to respond in yeah. certain ways and to have um, emotional responses is a, a huge, huge part of it. It's why most of us... Um, pick up a book and keep reading a book. Yes, and I, I also think when you're writing, it's really, you know, for me, I try to always have my eye on myself as a reader mm. because I think sometimes you, you begin to write something and you think, I mean, certainly with Harold Fry, there were moments when I thought, oh, it would be quite interesting if Harold and Queenie had a relationship. And then I thought, actually, that's wrong. Mm. That's not right for this story. But I noticed in myself that I'd had that reaction, so I thought, well... The reader might have that, so I can play with that, and then I can knock it on the head, and we can move on. But I think it's a it's an interesting exercise as well. You know, at the same time that you're writing, to to be remembered of yourself as a reader, and um, you know, yeah, just to, just to keep those things boiling. 
Thank you. Now, um, we do have just a, a few more minutes, so perhaps I'll give uh, our audience another chance. Yes, just down the front, if our roving mic could come and find you. Thank you. If you have any plans to write um, books aimed at a younger audience, so either children or preteens, children or sorry, children or young teenagers. I, I, well, my children keep asking me to, but I, no, I, I think I, I actually don't know. I think I'll probably see where I go. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's a real art writing for children. Um, Part of sort of learning to write for me anyway was figuring out what sort of writer I was and, and what I could do and what I couldn't do. And um, I'd be wary of the idea that I could just think, oh, I can write for children, because I think it's a very, very specific, um, difficult skill. In some ways, it's more difficult than writing for adults. Um, Alex was actually picked up and, and marketed as a crossover book. It was aimed at sort of 14 plus. I always thought I was writing a book for adults, but it probably goes in with... Um, the fact that I like to use quite um, accessible story devices and things like that. But um, no, in, in that respect, I wouldn't plan to, to write for children. I think if um, children or, or teenagers or younger adults come to the book, that's a, a fantastic thing. I know from speaking to people that my, my youngest reader has been 10, and my oldest has been 101 that I know of. <laughs> so that is that that does sort of, you know, cross the whole spectrum. Thank you. Um, uh, yes, at the back there. Yeah. I've got a couple of questions for Rachel. It's been really nice to hear about all your inspirations and your ideas behind writing perfect. Could I ask you some more to talk more about the Harold Fry book? Yeah. And the second question is, what do you think Harold's up to right now? <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't hear. What do I think Harold... What do you think Harold's up to right now? Oh, he won't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> he stopped writing to me. Um, I am... Um, yeah, I mean, Harold Fry, I felt very clearly at the end of Harold Fry. Well, two things happened. One, I felt right at the end of Harold Fry, there's a moment where he and Maureen share a joke. And... Um, the reader's not allowed to have it. And I felt that was very much the point, you know, where the film or at the end of a play where the curtain comes across, you know, it's sort of like the book or the characters are saying, right, cheerio, it's been lovely, but we're, we're off now. Um, but there was, I, I made a gap for myself, basically, in Harold Fry, for if I, thought, if I was ever ready, I would, that I could come back. And... Um, what I'm doing now is I am actually writing a book called The Love Song of Miss Queenie Hennessy. And it is, it is her story because I, I, I gave one chapter at the end in her point of view uh, because I thought that there's a whole story there that I haven't told that I really, really want to tell, but it wasn't the place. And also because so much of the story was involved in my relationship with my dad and his dying and his cancer, I didn't really quite feel ready to go right into that space. But now that, I've written, now that I discovered I could write Harold Fry, and when we were talking about tricks, you know, and I mean, for me, part of Harold Fry was tricking myself into believing I could write a book. That was, you know, and finding I could. And now that I've written perfect, I feel I can go back now and do and write Queenie's story. So... 
So that's what I'm really enjoying working on, because there was just loads of material that I had to abandon, um, you know, and then there wasn't room for. Um, I don't know whether I've quite answered the question. <laughs> I'm very good at not quite answering the question. <laughs> well, I wonder if... Um, Gavin, would you like to say anything briefly about what... You mentioned tantalisingly for a moment there, your second novel. Uh, would you like to keep it under wraps for now, or can you give us a uh, I can give about? you... I'm quite, this is the one question I'm very good at not answering as well. <laughs> okay. I, I tend to talk around this. <laughs> But no, it's not a sequel. Um, Alex's story is absolutely finished. It was completely self-contained. And um, as I've said, a lot of extraordinary things happened to him. And I think anything else would um, stretch credibility to breaking point. And um, I'm quite happy to let him live off his life off stage, which um, I find quite a, a lovely idea. So the second book is... Um, that, for me, it was like learning to, to write a book all over again. Um, <laughs> You sort of, you hope that obviously your debut will get noticed by someone, but then when it does, the flip side of that is there's a certain amount of expectation and suddenly people are watching you, right, which is a, a strange and daunting experience. But um, it's, I think, it builds on the things that I love doing with Alex, so it's very, very based in voice. Um, it's written from the perspective of a 26-year-old woman who... Um, goes to her neighbour's flat one evening to borrow a tin of tomatoes and um, discovers that he's dead. And that was the starting point for me. And it actually, it's based very loosely on something that happened to me. That scenario didn't happen to me, but I did come back from Lidl with a bag of shopping and um, discovered that one of my neighbours had died and that um, there was a woman on the landing wanting to borrow my mobile phone. And that um, absolutely set my mind racing. I couldn't sleep that night. I was just thinking and thinking and thinking, and that became the seed of, um, of book two. And it was different in the respects that I had the ending all mapped out of Alex. This feels more like a, a leap of, in the dark, but in a very good way. But I, I'm sort of working a lot more out as I go along. Wow. What a tantalising <laughs> suggestion. Um, well, look, um, I would, uh, I'm sure we would all um, love to hear more um, from both of you, but unfortunately the um, artificial numerical construction <laughs> that we call time, um, I have numbers uh, here, here at my feet. Um, I think if nothing else over the, uh, the last hour, I think we really have um, established um, the importance uh, of, of stories. Um, and uh, may I you know, um, recommend to you all... Um, two wonderful, uh, moving, funny, extremely enjoyable stories uh, that happen to be about time and the universe, uh, amongst <laughs> other things. Uh, now, um, I wanna, are you able to, um, to sign for us af after the reading? Um, both, um, uh, so the, um, the, the, um, the, the books are, are available if, if you would like um, our authors to, um, to sign copies for you afterwards. But um, can we please thank them both for coming to Darren? <laughs>